Hello, church family. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel LeGrand Sunday morning service. He's not hiding from what we have going on. His son um, is running in a, man, I wish this summer was here. I want to say, or he finished yesterday, actually. I think it was like 100 miles or something that they ran. Was it? Yeah. 100 miles? And I saw that, what's that? On trails. Right. But regardless, nobody is unimpressed with 100 miles on the road. Here they are impressed with 100 miles, right? All of us are impressed. I have never ran. Anybody in here ran 100 miles before? Maybe a cumulative in your life, you know? Clayton did it in one day. And so he um, actually has been training for this and ended up finishing. Now, if I'm wrong, Summer, tell me. Third overall? Fourth overall in a pretty competitive race. Um, so amazing. And then in his class, maybe like second in his class or something? Fourth overall. Okay. So regardless, it was amazing. And so Rob, of course, wanted to be there in person to watch. So they, um, being unafraid to travel, uh, our pastor's bold, went down there and hung out with Clayton and got to watch him finish the race uh, in his best time ever, oh, running uh, 100 miles. So pretty amazing. In the meantime, Robert asked me to teach on Wednesday and on Sunday, so we went through the book of Philemon, at least part of it, on Wednesday night. And so we're going to try to get through the whole book this morning, if we can. As far as Philemon goes, just a little bit of history, and then we'll read through it. Philemon is a book written unlike any other epistle of Paul's to an individual. Although you might say, well, Titus and Timothy, weren't they individuals? And yes, they were. But the purpose of those epistles was to take back to church, to church leadership especially, um, but also to be shared amongst the church. Philemon's message had the intent of going to an individual for an individual circumstance that was happening. Written probably in 61 or 62 AD, around the same time that the book of Colossians was written, we actually find from Colossians chapter 4, verse 9, that Philemon probably lived in Colossae. And the reason we know this is because Onesimus, who is his servant or slave, um, we are told in Colossians, his original territory or the place that he resided from or that he was native from was Colossae. And so it's thought that probably uh, Philemon who we find out in this chapter, or in this epistle, has his own home church, probably had a home church in Colossae, and that is where he and Onesimus uh, were living before Onesimus became a rogue servant, or a rogue slave, as we find out reading through this chapter. And if you don't understand this, this epistle, if you've never read it, Philemon is a believer, we're going to find out that he's not just your average believer. He's somebody who has, again, a church in his house. He's somebody who has an incredible reputation, and yet he's got a runaway slave. We don't know. We're not given the details of why Onesimus ran away. We're only told that he has taken off, and probably we can infer from this small epistle that he may have even stolen something before he left. A man who Philemon, I am sure, as we'll find out, as we'll read and talk about today, struggled with that. And it sounds like Paul is worried about that as well, or he wouldn't have addressed this letter, taken the time to write it and send to him, 
uh, before Onesimus returns home. Perhaps what we know about Philemon is he could have been a wealthy believer in order to own slaves, although you guys know in that time one thing that could allow you to be rid of your debt to somebody is that you could um, be their servant. You could be a slave up to seven years and then you would be free. Um, so it could be a situation like that. However, we also know that he's got a home big enough to have a church in it. He also has guest rooms that uh, people come and stay in frequently. None of that would guarantee that he's wealthy, but it might point to the fact that he could be. We also see in verse 19 of this epistle that he probably was saved, brought to the Lord through Paul the Apostle and his ministry. So Philemon is a believer, one who has a friendship with Paul, one who maybe even has a father in the faith who would be Paul the Apostle. The other thing to note before we dig in is that runaway slaves could be punished by death and even crucifixion in that time. So Onesimus is facing a really difficult situation. We're going to find out that he's now a believer, amazingly enough. That God has, through Paul's ministry, again, won him to Christ. But now he's got to do the hard work of trying to make things right, which might even cost him his life. Sometimes we are called as laborers. We're going to find out Philemon gets that label. Laborers for Christ, as those who have our identity in Christ, that God asks us to do the right thing, which is not always the easy thing. Amen? And sometimes we don't know, we're trusting that it's going to turn out all right, but we don't know for sure that it's going to. I'd like for you all to just take a moment and meditate on a time where you were so nervous to go and do the right thing, but you knew God would have you do that right thing. And remember the anxiety. Remember the struggle. I also would like for us to have a real discussion about what happens in church life. What happens in life, period, because we're humans. And I, just for the sake of, of um, crowd participation, I guess, this morning, let's raise our hands for a moment. How many of you have ever been bitter at somebody? How many of you have ever been so bitter you did not want to forgive somebody? And when that person does the right things, maybe even gives their life to the Lord and should be forgiven, you still struggle with doing that. This is the situation I believe that Philemon is in. I believe Philemon is a godly man, as we're going to find out, but he's been offended. He's been offended in that his slave ran away when he was a good master, at least from everything that we read, he would have been a good master. And I believe he's been stolen from. And because he's a good master and had treated Onesimus well, there's a lot of space for bitterness. There's a lot of space for resentment. There's a lot of space for anger, content, contempt, I mean. And I think all those things might be real for him and his family because Paul is taking the time to write a letter and even says, I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult. So today... To set the stage Why I bring all of this up is because I think That even in this body We talked about it on Wednesday I know that I've offended some of you In the years of service here I know that you've been bugged with me I know you've been frustrated with me And you know why I know that? Because 
I'm human and I make, and I say stupid things. I get behind a mic for 45, anyone who gets behind a mic for 45 minutes and is going to talk is setting themselves up to say something stupid. It's just going to happen. And I do it all the time. I also have not been Christian in, my, in the way that I've interacted with you in 20 years because I, like you guys, am a sinner. And guess what? You, some of you in this room, if I'm going to be honest, have bugged me before. You've irritated me. And I've had a hard time getting over it. And the easy thing sometimes is just to put on a smile, say good morning, and never deal with the issue. But I believe that Paul says that's not good enough. Not in the body of Christ. So I'd like for you to pray even deeper. I'm not saying you need to conjure something up, but I think there's probably in this room some people who can think right now, even in the body of Christ, someone that I've just been bugged with, that I've just reserved myself to that place of being irritated and I'm okay with it, and that's just where I'm going to be. That God might this morning, by the power of Holy, His Holy Spirit and by the power of His Word, soften your heart, release you from that, and even reconcile that relationship. Because this is a book of great reconciliation, of breaking down separation, of restoring relationships. And there is not one person in this room who doesn't have at least one relationship that could use restoration. So let's read the epistle of Philemon, and then we'll break it down. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all his saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Verse 8, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back, therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For, per for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you, that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. For I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. 
One of the reasons we believe this is written at the same time as Colossians is if you read at the end of Colossians, you'll see a lot of these same gentlemen who are with him. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, from the very beginning, we have something that makes this epistle a little different. How does Paul normally introduce himself in his epistles? We're missing something here that he normally mentions. In 13 of his epistles, he says, Paul and what? An apostle. Yeah. And we notice that that's left here. Instead, he identifies himself as a prisoner. Now, there's, there's ways in which Paul presents his letters that I think are strategic, and I think there are things he mentions at the beginning here because he's wanting to stir up or break up that fallow ground, the hardness of Philemon's heart towards maybe his, his slave Onesimus. And one of them is that Paul currently is in prison. But notice who he says he's a prisoner of. Paul, a prisoner of whom? Of Jesus Christ. He knows to whom he belongs. He knows who is in control. He is confident that his current circumstances are ordained. Paul finds himself in a place where if he is chained, if he is free, if he's in perils in the deep, if he's sleeping well at night, if he's fed, if he's hungry, if he's clothed, if he's naked, if he's in good health, or he has the coronavirus. He is at a spot where he is settled into, Lord, you are in control. You are my God. You are my king. And these chains and my prison assignment is because you've ordained it. I am your prisoner. And that is so much the heart of the Lord, just as Rob has been sharing with us about going to our jobs. We don't work, or I don't work, for Grand Ronde Hospital. Who do I work for? Yeah, I work for Christ. Uh, Rick doesn't work for or necessarily administer um, at the Grand Gold and Silver. He's doing it for the Lord. Rhonda, who's been an employee for Xerox and, and now the offshoot company of Xerox, I don't remember who they are, for years, I know, in talking to her, it's hopping in her van with all those supplies for Jesus. Why is that so important? Because we stay on mission. It no longer becomes about, did I get the raise or not? It no longer becomes about, do I have an employer who treats me well? Or do I get along with my coworkers? That will determine whether I'm good at my job or I have a good attitude. All the circumstances that can cause us to be like, ah, oh, this is not what I thought I was called to. This isn't what I wanted to do. I've heard a lot of people said that, say or tell me when you ask them about their jobs. Well, it's not what I want to do. It's just temporary. My hope is to, and there's nothing wrong with that, but in the midst of doing whatever that is, be doing it for Jesus. And that allows you to not be bitter, to not be angry, to not be frustrated, and to have a good testimony. So I believe Paul has a great prison ministry going on because he recognizes why he is there. It's not the only time Paul says this, right? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ. In, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, I am his prisoner. It's the same attitude that has carried saints like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 
Corey Ten Boom, Richard Wormbrandt, John Bunyan, and many, many more has carried them through some of the most difficult imprisonments that the world has ever known. Torture, imprisoned, and yet bringing people to Christ in the midst of it. Unbelievable. Amazing. Not the script we would want to write, but the script that the Lord uses to bring those to him. Notice also he calls them in verse 1, calls Philemon his fellow laborer. This is the Greek word, soon ergos, and it means a companion in work. And it's mentioned 13 times in Paul's epistles. He mentions laborers. But what's interesting is a lot of times it's attributed to men who, when I read the list, seem a little bit obscure. Listen to some of these names. Not household, at least in my opinion. Urbanus, Lucius, Sosipater, Epaphrodites, Clement, Justus, Aristarchus, Philemon. These are some of the names that get the label laborer. And we're really not told much about them. that They, they pop up here and there. But we're not given a lot of other descriptors except for they are laborers for the Lord. Remember that Jesus says, remember that Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest because they are few. Maybe that is why Paul names them laborers and actually has a list. Because there are few laborers in our lives, there are few laborers who raise up to the occasion to really work for the kingdom of God. Maybe he's able to have a, a list pretty handy, and he says that. Maybe it, it really is just the companions that are with him. But I wonder, too, sometimes we want to be laborers, or, or we desire to follow that calling on our lives, if it comes with some accolades, if it comes with some praise, if it comes with some sort of substantial, like, elevating of myself. But these guys are just kind of briefly mentioned, and we don't get much more. You hear a lot about Paul. You hear a lot about Peter. You hear a lot about John. But these guys are the, the workers. And one thing I wanted to just note as a side note here is that what a glorious thing to be— labeled a laborer, but also what a really great insight for you and I to know that a lot of times we're workers without recognition. We're just doing it because God has called us to that calling, to that vocation, and we do it for the Lord. Then we notice also there's Apphia and Archippus, thought possibly to be Philemon's family, his wife and his son. And culturally, it's important to know that the wives were in charge of the slaves. They were supervisors over the servants in the homes of that day. So it very well is being, uh, Paul is addressing it to her very well because he could be thinking that this decision is not just Philemon's, but this decision is also his wife's to bring this slave back, what he's about to ask them to do. Then moving on in verse 4, he says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. When I looked this up, you guys, I found this four other times in the scriptures. And there's something very interesting about Paul when he says, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Romans 1, 9, listen to this. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, 
making request if by some means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. Then in Ephesians 1.5, listen to this. He says it again. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you always in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the kingdom of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. Paul, as an apostle, was over many churches. And when he prays like this, I make mention of you always in my prayers, and then gives us such specific things that he's praying about for the Ephesians, for the Romans, and now for individuals like Philemon, it gives us some insight into Paul's prayer life that he isn't just using that phrase lightly. I make mention of you always in my prayers, but he goes on to specifically say, and this is how I pray over you. That is amazing. Because this is no small effort on a consistent basis. How many of you guys struggle to just make enough space to really intercede, to really pray for people in your lives? I don't know if you've had a chance to see the movie. It's a great movie. I'm not saying I take a whole bunch of spiritual insight from Mr. Rogers, but there were some spiritual insights. There were some great things I really respected. Have you guys seen that movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? I loved the scene where he's getting ready to go swimming. If you haven't seen it, this was a real um, practice in his life. As he's putting on a swim cap and he's getting ready, He's preparing his heart. He begins to pray. And then as he does lap after lap after lap, he's just praying over people. Specific prayers. He's praying over names. He's lifting people up. He's creating space in his life on a daily basis during this time of swimming to pray. And I am I'm so encouraged and so refreshed. One of the reasons I think Philemon is refreshing is because he's a prayer warrior too. But Paul the Apostle, specifically praying over people, this is refreshing for Philemon. When he breaks open this letter and he says, this is how you're praying over me? This is why you're encouraged over who I am in Jesus? Wow, I'm blessed. I am so blessed to know that you specifically think that way towards me. A while back, Andrew Holmquist came up to me and as I began to advance in my career at the hospital, and I think especially when I got my job in the ICU, he came up and put his hand on my shoulder and, and in his genuine Andrew way just said, Wade, I've been praying for you. And the Lord's had me praying over you that you wouldn't lose your empathy as you minister to people in the body of Christ, that you wouldn't lose your compassion as you see a lot of loss and a lot of death. And this was insight that I wasn't even thinking about. But over and over again, it has blessed me so much. And when he gave me those specifics, you really knew Andrew was praying over you, right? This was not just, hey, I'll be praying for you. Or, yeah, oh, yeah, you bet, I'll lift you up in prayer. And that's all as far as it goes. He came with a specific word. And you guys, as you engage in in-depth prayer for the body of Christ, you are going to be able to encourage them as you walk up to them and just say, I want you to know how God is having me pray for you right now. It's such an encouragement. And maybe 
God is saying, nope, just keep it quiet, keep it quiet. Now's the time. Go encourage them. But it's, it's to me, I'm blown away. All the people that Paul has to pray for, and he can be this specific, shows how important it is to have a, a, a vibrant prayer life. He also gives Thessalonians, in Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, a specific prayer for them. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 5. Notice that Philemon is also marked by love. It says, hearing of your love and your faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward the saints. Notice he loves Christ first, and then he's able to love the saints. Because let's face it, we are hard to love. We have been offended, as I said earlier, and we have offended. Some of us are irritated with someone in this room right now. If we are going to be marked by our love for one another, John 13, 35, we have to overcome ourselves, our own limitations, and our inability to love people, especially those of the household of faith. How do we overcome it? Because you know what? If I'm upset, and I'm, I'm bitter towards somebody, and I'm offended, and I have contempt, and I'm irritated, and all those things... I can't get over it in my own strength. And if I try to, there won't truly be healing. Amen? If you're just trying to do it in your own strength, if you haven't really prayed, if God hasn't transformed your heart, it falls way short of what it needs to be, and true restoration in those relationships doesn't happen. And believe me, that is the great testimony. Why is it that Jesus says in John 13, 35, that the world will know you by your love for one another because it's his great desire that the world would look upon the church, church and say, wow, there's a kind of love, there's a kind of quinonia that doesn't just happen at a club, that just doesn't just happen at a sporting event because we're all rooting for the same team. There's something that's separate here. Pure love amongst the body of Christ. How are you going to do it? You can't. But the recipe is here. The recipe is written down for us. And Paul is about to test it at every level with Philemon. Remember, he says in verse 7 that he was the one who has been refreshing others with his love. Maybe the best compliment I could think of. He's given Paul great joy in, in verse 7. He's leaving this wake in his life of refreshing. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? That the people who are around Wade Twilliger are refreshed. Sometimes convicted, that leads to refreshment. Sometimes in awe of what God is doing, but it all leads to this spirit of refreshing. That's a great litmus test. And I think it's an, it's an opportunity for us to examine our hearts today and say, God, what kind of fruit do I have? But you guys, I'm convinced in reading this chapter, in reading this epistle, that the only way I'm going to get over some of the broken relationships that I have currently in my life, and I have them as well as you, is by loving Jesus first. Your faith and your love for Christ Jesus and the saints. Out of that, as Paul or as Rob has been doing so well with Ephesians teaching us, the sit walk stand, our time with Christ produces 
the love that we need to have for the body. So put that person in your mind. Put that relationship that's strained in your mind right now and remind yourself, man, I know it needs to be restored, but Jesus, I can't do it. It's got to be you. I want to spend time with you and have you do the work in my life, in my heart. Paul continues to pray for him in verse 6, even though we kind of skipped ahead there for a second, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you. The sharing of your faith. What is his faith? This is his testimony. And what do we know that the Bible says about faith? Faith comes by what? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. He's saying that this is his faith, it's his personal testimony, and it's powerful, but it should be grounded and have a foundation in the Word of God. Then it causes others, look what happens, when, we, when it is true faith grounded in the Word, it causes others to acknowledge every good thing that is in us. It's a game changer. It's a tide turner. When you tie that testimony to the Word of God. I've heard testimonies before that are so far outside of the Word of the Lord that it's almost frustrating because you're like, man, I love the zeal, but, but this someone needs to get a hold of this guy or this gal and get them grounded in the word of God because you take that zeal and you take that testimony and now you couple it with the word and it's really going to have power. But it's also so important that we share our testimony because it does cause people to acknowledge the good things in our lives as being from him. That's what I want. I want the secularists around me I want the humanists around me. I want the atheists around me to see the good things in my life and be convinced that is God. That is the Lord. That is not Wade. And I think God is about that when we're bold to share that, yes, this is my testimony. It's grounded in the word, and it it has to do with Jesus, not me. Verse 8. That I might be very bold, he says, moving down. Therefore, I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Again, Paul is asking Philemon, or is going to ask him, to do hard things. As faithful and and loving as Philemon is, and how refreshing he has been, he's not immune to resentment, bitterness, and contempt. Just like the rest of us, Paul knows He's human, and he's been offended. Onesimus is likely not just a runaway slave. As we see, look at verses 18 and 19, and just be reminded, Paul's talking about if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. In verse 19, I will repay. There's something that is, whether it's the debt that Onesimus had or the fact that a lot of commentators believed he probably stole something, Paul is saying, I will repay that. So there's so much room for anger. And again, there are times that we've reserved ourselves to being bugged, annoyed, offended, bitter, or hateful. But he's about to ask him to do something very difficult. Um, because Rob has shared this over the pulpit already, I don't, I'm not afraid to share it with you guys because he's already shared this several times. Um, and so it might be a repeat for some of you. But I remember one of the greatest testimonies I've ever had for this 
is when Rob was, he tells the story of when he was about 18 years old, a college student, I believe in Caldwell. The Twin Falls, was it Twin Falls? All right, a college student in Twin Falls. Thank you, Rhonda, help me get it straight. <laughs> he was going to school, and the college he was going to refurnished their lobby with brand new furniture. And Rob decided to move out, get himself his own apartment, but he had no furniture. And he thought to himself, ah, I know where I can get some furniture. This is Rob before Jesus, all right? So he backs his truck up to the foyer and loads up all the brand new furniture that he can fit in the back of his truck, takes it, furnishes his apartment, enjoys it for years until he comes to know Jesus and one day he's sitting there doing his devotions and the Lord begins to tap on his shoulder. Hey, you know that chair you're sitting in? You know that coffee table that your Bible's sitting on? You know the, the TV stand, all these things that you have? These are not yours. Remember what you did. And Rob had this moral dilemma. Man, if I go make this right and I go hauling this stuff back to the university... I'm likely to go to jail. They could turn me in. They could make me pay a whole bunch of money that I don't have. But the Lord kept saying, do it. So sure enough, he loaded it all back up in his truck because God was telling him to do a difficult thing as Paul is asking Philemon to do. And he drives it up to that dorm room and he goes and finds the lady, same lady that was there when he stole it all. And she comes out furious. Oh, we wondered where all this went. I can't believe. And Rob was there just to say, I know, I blew it, but I'm giving it back. And I, and I believe, and you can ask him, if I get this wrong, you know, you guys just go talk to him, but I believe he, he said to me that she was irritated the whole time, but she never pressed charges. They never, they never called the police, never had him pay retribution. They just took the furniture back. Now, this is not how it's always going to work. I'm just letting you know right now, this is not a testimony that every time God asks you to go do the hard thing, that there won't be some consequences. But Rob was prepared that if he went to jail, he was going to jail for Jesus because he was getting things right, and God was in control of his life. And sometimes we're asked to do difficult things. And that's what Paul is saying to Philemon. And he wants him to do it for love's sake. Look at verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to both you and me. Paul has the authority in the church as the apostle to just say, this is what you're going to do. I'm head over the churches. There's a church in your house. There were elders in these towns that would often be over the multiple house churches. And then there were apostles, like Paul, who were over several towns. And Paul had the authority, as you guys know, as you've read through the book of Acts, he established many of these churches. Though we don't know for sure if he made it to Colossae, we do know that he was in Laodicea, which is right next to it, and it's likely that he probably did. In fact, it sounds to me like he's been to Philemon's house before, doesn't it? Because he's like, hey, prepare one of those guest rooms for me, right? He calls him a beloved friend. He calls him a co-worker. He calls him a companion. 
I believe they've met. He's probably been in Colossae. You can debate that all you want, but the reality is Paul has the authority, and he even mentions here in the epistle that you owe me even your own life. Why is that? Because Paul likely led Philemon to Jesus. So he could exercise all kinds of authority here. If you've ever had a spiritual father in your life, be it a pastor or, or just somebody who led you to Jesus, you recognize the kind of respect that you have for them. There are a lot of things that Rob could probably just say to me like, hey, you're just going to do this. And I'd be like, yes, yes, sir. Yes, dad. Because he has been like a, a dad and a spiritual father to me. But love often demands something else, doesn't it? Have you ever tried to get your fighting kids to apologize genuinely? Zach was telling me on, he was giving this example on uh, Wednesday night, and he was talking about how talking through his boy, to his boys in a way in which they kind of arrived at it on their own. And I said, man, can you give me a lesson, please? Because I oftentimes am like, Julian, say you're sorry to Tobin. And how does that go? Sorry. Tobin, say you're sorry to Juju. Tobin, say you're sorry. Sorry. And it's like, that's not really what I wanted, was it? That's not the response you want. Paul could say, do it. And Philemon might go, fine. Fine, I'll do it. But he wouldn't do it because his heart had been transformed. Here he says, for love's sake. He's appealing to him at that capacity, hoping that this is where he lands in his own relationship with the Lord. The other thing that's interesting when we read there in verses 10 and 11, why, we really don't know why Onesimus escaped to Rome and sought out Paul. How does he end up there? Why does he go to Paul? Who, Paul, if you'll remember, when he's in Rome, he's basically on house arrest. He's definitely imprisoned there, but he gets to have friends visit him and come and go for like a two-year period. But I'm going to speculate a little bit that when Paul was in Colossae, if he ever indeed visited there, that he laid down an incredible witness. That Paul's testimony really related, really resonated with Onesimus. Because what do we know about Paul and his conversion? We know that one, at one point, he was an enemy of the church, right? And even had legal papers that allowed him to go and arrest Christians and drag them off to jail. We know that he was consenting unto Stephen's death, holding the coats of those who threw the stones. So when Paul got saved, did the church just say, All right, cool, man. If you say it, come on in. Paul had a difficult time, didn't he? Acclimating into the church. People did not want to receive him. In fact, when Ananias is asked to go pray for him after his conversion— even Ananias is struggling. Do you know, Lord? I mean, that's the last thing you ever want to say to God. Like, do you know? Because the answer is always what? Of course. <laughs> do you know, Lord, who you're asking me to go pray for? This is the one. This is the one who was dragging people off. He's had the authority. I'm not. Hey, just obey. Go. Pray for him. Paul in sharing his testimony, I believe, not only shared of the transformation that God did in his wayward heart when he was shaking his fist at God, 
but also this testimony of being an outcast. Also this testimony of being one who was rejected by the church. And it took a while for them to finally warm up to the idea that, wow, Paul really is a changed person. I believe that when God had done the work on Onesimus' heart and got him to that place where he was sick of his sin, where he recognized and had guilt and shame over having left and escaped and maybe stolen some goods from his master, that he knew where to go. That he remembered that testimony. He also maybe, if he saw Paul, got to behold a man who was refreshing himself who was transformed in such a way that you hung on his words, was filled with the Spirit and spoke with such power that you couldn't help but turn your ear when he spoke, when he shared. And you guys, is that not the case for many of us and how we came to know Jesus? God brought somebody into our lives that we knew. Man, when things get crazy, when my heart is breaking, when the guilt and shame are getting, I'm going to that individual because they are a real believer. They are somebody who has a relationship with Jesus. They have a testimony in my life. And that was how it was for me with Rob. I knew. I had been around him as a little kid. I had watched him do devotions with his family. I would watched him lead people to the Lord. I couldn't believe when I stayed the night at their house that and I think I even asked them several times, like, do you, do you and Don ever fight? Like, do you guys ever get in an argument? Well, I mean, we, we, we went bicker a little and tease each other. No, I'm talking about like a real argument. You know, we'd all seen those, right? I mean, I'd, I'd grown up with some of that. And I just thought, whoa, this is unbelievable. And then when I started going to church, because my life was falling apart, and my mom said, you're coming to church, like, if you're going to stay in my house, you're basically mandated to attend church. And we came, and I remember the same Rob from behind the pulpit was the Rob that I got to experience when I went out to lunch. He didn't change. I lived with them day in and day out for two years. And I can tell you, he was the same day in and day out as he was from behind the pulpit, same person. And that, to me, when I was ready to give my life to Jesus— I knew exactly who to go to. That was the testimony that was laid out. And I think Onesimus, in my opinion, seeks out Paul for that very reason. Now, notice that it says, you once were unprofitable, but you've become profitable. Or he had become profitable. Paul's saying, you once were, and the Greek word is akristos, and it means you once were useless. Onesimus Philemon, I know, was useless to you at one point. You, you could do without him. If you never saw his face again, you were good. Useless. And this was likely the narrative that Philemon and his wife had written in their minds. Useless. We've moved on. Maybe even bitter, or maybe frustration. Maybe they hadn't moved on. Maybe they were still, it was still stinging them, what he had done. And I'll bet Onesimus had written his own narrative that was very similar. Can I ever be forgiven? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a reject slave. I've stolen. This is who I am. You guys ever have that negative voice in your head trying to change your identity? 
You ever had that voice that speaks so loudly you want to listen to it and let it write your story? Don't let the inner critic write your story. I always have this voice that says, yeah, the gospel for all others, but not you. Your sin is too big. I always have this voice that says, you're never, you know, I constantly have to remind myself, I live in fear, that at some point in the hospital, one of my superiors is going to walk in and be like, ha, you phony. We, we, we finally figured it out. You were never really good enough to be a manager, and I'm going to be like, ah, I'm exposed, you know. In reality, I know that God is, is using, and, he, and he's doing a good work, and, and he's taking care of those details, but we feel that way, don't we? For the longest time, I never wanted to jam with another musician. For the longest time, I was comfortable with Summer, comfortable with Clayton, comfortable with Lou, but people would say, hey man, you want to come over and jam? And I was always like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to hang out with you guys and, and jam because the inner critic had convinced me. Instead of just being free, we had this young man one time who came up here. His name was Heath, wonderful kid. And I was always blown away, uh, not necessarily the best musician, but so not worried about what people thought that he would just go around, man, can I jam with you? Can I hang out with you guys and play music? And I thought, man, I would never have done that. I was scared even when I was invited. And he would come and just with the joy, play. But I had this inner voice that said, you're not worthy. And I listened to it, and I let it write the narrative. I have a feeling that Onesimus might have this inner voice that just says, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to restore the relationship. And maybe Philemon and his wife have something similar going on. But Paul says, you've become profitable, which is a different Greek word, eukrostos, and it means useful. And in 2 Timothy 2.21, it says, it uses this word in this way. It says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the ministry. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul, who once had rejected Mark, says that, Bring Mark to me, for now he is Eucharistos. He is useful to me. Jesus is a redeemer. Amen? Jesus is a restorer. And he flips the narrative. The gospel flips the narrative. And now I get to be like David, and I get to say to my soul, Be still, O my soul. Be quiet within me. Trust in the Lord. We get a little peek into David's inner voice, don't we, when we read through the Psalms, when he's encouraging himself in Christ Jesus. Stop the negative voice. Listen to what the truth of the gospel has to say. Preach the gospel to yourself. Let's read verses 12 through 14 together again. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. It is really Paul's heart to see those that he has discipled become independently faithful used of God, and established. This is him saying, I don't want you to lose your reward. I could tell you what to do, and I am kind of encouraging you what to do, but I ultimately want it to be your decision from your own relationship with God, not because somebody else is telling you to do it, but because God has worked on your heart. And really, that is discipleship. 
The hope is when you are discipling somebody that they land in a place in their own relationship with God that they're obedient to His Word. That they're following the Word of God, that they're having their own relationship and their own convictions, and that's when it's exciting as somebody who's been investing in others to stand back and go, oh, I truly am refreshed. And Paul's going to say that to Philemon. He's saying, oh man, refresh my heart by showing me that you've grown in your relationship at such a level that you could do what I know seems impossible, and that's forgive Onesimus. And not just forgive him, because we're going to land in a better spot than that, aren't we? And it's a lot to ask just to forgive, but he's going to go even beyond that. This is discipleship, and you guys, oh, I'm so blessed to see this. I hope I don't embarrass anybody here. I didn't ask for permission, but I've watched Armin invest in Gaia and Natasha in an awesome way, and to see the fruit there has been amazing. Rick with Stan, um, I know there's been a great relationship there. To see the fruit has been amazing. Um, James, I hope I don't embarrass you, but just watching James grow over the last year has been so awesome. And I wish you guys could watch James grow, not just from the stage, because we're blessed, right? I mean, this is a talented young man who loves the Lord and wants to give his gifts back to Jesus. There you are. Sorry, buddy. I didn't ask. I'm just going to share. You can get mad at me later, and then you'll use the sermon to forgive me because we'll restore our relationship, right? You know? <laughs> but also, I've been just so impressed over the last, maybe it's been two years, that he's consistently been in our Bible study on Sunday mornings, and to watch him turn into a studier who can share from the Word of God, who has his own convictions. It's just like, yes, that's what it's about. And it would be so easy to try to micromanage everybody. And Paul, even though it seems a little bit micromanagey, Paul is saying, I'm really trying to get away from that. I really want this to be you doing what is right, because you know it's right in your own relationship with the Lord. All right, verse 15 and 16. For perhaps, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Maybe there's a purpose, Philemon. Yeah, I don't care. You know, have you ever been so angry? Someone says, well, God's working this out. He's got a purpose. That's not what I want to hear right now. I'm frustrated, and I want to stay in the state of— I just want to be mad. You ever said that? I just want to be angry. Have you ever said that to somebody? I think you just want to be mad. I think you just want to be angry. It doesn't necessarily go well. <clears throat> I've never said that to my wife in our, in our marriage. Yeah, no, I, I actually have, and that's why I say it doesn't go well. <clears throat> And then he says, I want you to receive him as a brother, like I have. I can just hear Philemon saying, I don't want to. I don't care. I don't want to. And I was immediately brought to Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? He just knew what was going to happen, didn't he? I mean, for, if, if you had never read the story at the beginning, you might be kind of wondering what's going on. But after you've read it several times, you, he knows that our God is a gracious God. He knows what the Word of God does to people. And he knows that if he goes into Nineveh and he shares the Word that the Lord has given him, that there's a good chance at least one person is going to give their lives to Jesus, and that is not going to work for him. Because the Assyrians, 
were an evil group of people who had messed with Israel and had done wicked things to all those they had oppressed. And the last thing he wanted to do was go preach the gospel. So just put this in your, in your minds. Enemies of the church. Going in to the Lord's resistant army. Going into an ISIS camp. Going into a certain political party. And just saying, I'm going to go in and I'm going to witness to them. With a real heart for them to change. When they had personally offended you. You know when, when and I know I've shared this on, oh, lots of times, and I'm sorry you guys. You just get the repeat Wade Twilliger stuff every time I'm up here. But when the shooting in North Carolina happened in that church... And all those individuals who had been affected went to the young man's trial. The expectation would be when they were given the mic, like, how could you have done this? I'll never see my wife again. I'll never see my daughter again. I'll never see my brother again. And what did they do? Quite the opposite, wasn't it? Jesus loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Repent of your sins. No deliverance. Be set free. Oh, as, as I was reading the article the first time, it was just like weeping. Because how could you do that when you imagine that kind of hurt, that kind of pain? So Jonah doesn't want to go. And after he finally goes, and, and on another side note, can you imagine being those sailors in the boat? As the storm is just raging and Jonah's saying, toss me and it's me. You're going, no way. We're not throwing anybody overboard. And they finally get to a spot where they've thrown everything off the ship. There's nothing left to toss that they can feasibly toss off, and the storm is still going, and they're still going to perish, and finally they're convinced. I mean, how treacherous and torturous that must have been to be tossing a human being over the edge. I, I, for some reason this week as I was running, the Lord just put this in my mind. Like, that was a, a oppressive thing for those people on the boat. And they throw them over, maybe even with tears in their eyes. And the storm calms. But I wonder if they were really relieved of their anxiety or if they still sat there and were weeping going, that man's dead. That man's gone. Yeah, the storm is gone, but Jonah's dead. Of course, we know the story. He wasn't. God had turned the whole narrative around for Jonah at some level, at least to the point where he was going to be obedient. I think that Philemon is in that similar state. I really do. I believe that this is going to be a struggle for him. And again, he can't do it on his own. Hence the letter from Paul. Paul knows he, Paul knows he needs time. He needs prayer in order to be able to do this. And then in verse 20, turn to verse 20 real quick. If you're not already there, yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord, refresh my heart in the Lord. In his introduction, he reminded Philemon of the calling on his life and how he left a wake of refreshing. Now he is asking that he once again be marked by faith and love, as we saw in verse 5, in this situation. And then he says in verse 21, I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Again, going back to that bitterness, that anger, that separation that you might have in your relationships. Not just being able to forgive, but going beyond forgiveness. Why? Because does God just forgive you? 
No. He also redeems. He doesn't just forgive and wipe away the guilt. He also redeems and makes you a new creature. Amen? We are not just delivered. The Bible says we are more than conquerors. It would be enough to be delivered. Amen? It would be enough to have been pulled out of the flames and just set in a safe place. But he says, no, I've not just done that. I'm going beyond that. I'm making you more than a conqueror. I'm making you a victor. We are not only saved, but given an inheritance. I had no inheritance. You had no inheritance. You had no hope. And, and again, just being spared hell would have been enough. But he gives you a kingdom. Not just accepted. That blows my mind. Right now, right here, I think all of us have to have that hit our hearts with a certain amount of weight. You are accepted by a holy God. You are accepted because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. You're not just accepted. You're a bride. You're celebrated as the one who will have union with Christ Jesus. Is that not amazing? It would have been enough if he just accepted us. But that's not where he stops. And therefore, the impossible is possible. And Paul knows that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, that even a man like Philemon, as good as he is, can have all this bitterness, can have all this anger, and God can transform his heart to bring in Onesimus and not just bring him in and say, I forgive you. But do you recognize what Paul is asking? He's asking for the abolishment of slavery in this man's life. No longer a slave, but a brother. Because in the gospel, in Christ Jesus, there is now no separation. There is no longer male nor female, Greek or Hebrew, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. There is simply Christ and our identity in him. He has made us all one. He has broken down the walls of separation. And because of that, Paul knows that there can be restoration even when there's such a broken relationship. And he expects that they'll not only be forgiven, but these guys will go on to thrive. Now check this out. Ignatius writes an epistle later on, and I wish I would have wrote down the time frame, but after Paul's life is over, he writes an epistle to the Ephesians. And at that time, he writes to a pastor whose name is Onesimus. And there's a lot of people, we can just speculate, I don't know for sure, but there's a lot of historians who believe, Bible, Bible historians who believe that Onesimus not only was restored in his relationship with Philemon, but that he ended up pastoring one of the house churches in Ephesus. God truly freed him from slavery, and not only from slavery, but from the negative narrative that he had in his mind. God turned his wayward, rejected, outcast life around to being accepted at such a level that he was being used by God. Truly, our God is a God of miracles. Waymaker, promise keeper. Amen? Miracle worker. That is who you are. Our God is so good. Let's stand and pray.
Can we sing together? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for redeeming us giving us a hope, a future that is in you, restoring relationships that should not be restored, that should have been written off. And for the ones that we have not realized the restoration in, we trust that you will. Have God, there's ever a time as we face difficulty in the world that we're in now, let us not procrastinate, but get on our knees Pray for those who have hurt us. Pray for those who have just bugged us. Pray for those that we've maybe been irritated with so that we can go and confess our sin and have relationships restored that we might be known for our love for one another and that many people would come to know you as we display that love. Let us be like Philemon, refreshing. In Jesus' name, amen.